I was able to do way more pull-ups, which I loved. I had to shave every day, which I also loved, actually. And my voice had dropped. But really important things about my body had not changed. Like, I still had my thighs and my butt, and I still had my breasts. And my hair was starting to really appear. The treasure trail up to my belly button had gotten, like, intense. And then on my thighs, it had gotten intense. The final thing that really freaked me out is that it seemed to be, like, about to crop up on my butt. Your hair kind of goes through a cycle where, like, you get, like, it gets longer and it gets more numerous and then finally it gets darker. And it was like, oh, we are right on the precipice of this butt of mine being covered in, being covered in fur. It just really made me face like, oh, this butt is still going to have its same shape and it's still going to be connected to the, these thighs and it's... I'm still going to have these boobs, but I'm also going to be a lot furrier. And it was just so opposite from what I wanted out of my, out of hormones. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Understood as to Understand, featuring Carrie Callahan. When I was... 13, I had to start going to this high school across the city of Cleveland. And my parents dropped me off at the Rapid, which is what we call our train, um, at like 6.30 in the morning. I always had to wear a kilt and a polo and my backpack. You know, the backpack gave me a real hunch. But I would have had a hunch regardless because I sort of wanted to curl up into myself. I literally like got breasts over a summer like went from like nothing to a C cup they're covered in stretch marks I'm like mortified I was just totally like oh my god my body has become monstrous anytime I was on that train or walking to a bus stop or anything like that I was just really noticeable to all the men around me and they often wanted to tell me how I looked to them Hey, girl, how you doing? Hey, girl, you have a nice smile. Hey, girl, where do you go to school? Hey, girl, like, (laughs) you're so pretty. Did you ever say anything back to them? You know, I don't think I ever did. I've, like, stood up for other people on the bus, but I've never stood up for myself on the bus. I was a little tomboy girl growing up. Climbed a lot of trees. I was super obsessed with horses. My parents were very into me being a tomboy. They bought me like a tool set when I was in first grade. I was also like a real sensitive, anxious kid. I had a lot of math anxiety. I remember feeling like I was like a disappointment to my parents that I like wasn't more boyish in those ways. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I was a tomboy in terms of climbing trees, but I wasn't like a math and science whiz at all. I always felt way different from the other girls. There seemed to be things that weren't clicking for me in terms of what they were interested in and what I was interested in because, like, they seem to be totally okay in their schoolgirl uniforms and they have highlights and they know about makeup and um, they seem normal. And I am not normal. (laughs) I had to get to, like, college and after college before I was like, oh, maybe it's like that I'm not 
my gender is wrong. I went off to Ohio State for college, which was a real culture shock. I had just spent four years in an all-girls school. I don't think I actually was, like, psychologically prepared to be around 18-year-old men. I, If I walked down the street at night, it was pretty likely that some male voice out of nowhere would be like, you're fat. <laughs> like, that was normal. You're just like, oh, it's dark, and someone in the universe disapproves of my body. How did that affect you? In terms of your own body image issues? Um, I definitely thought that I was some kind of monstrous being in terms of my physical self. I did I did get raped at Ohio State. So um, so what that incident taught me at the time was that I was like really worthless at the female thing. Like I thought that that guy picked me because I was like such trash and he could tell. And he was like, oh, hey, look, here's this piece of trash that I could, like, torture for a little bit. So, so, <laughs> that's what Ohio State did to my body image. Um, I don't know. I, I also met my first trans guy at Ohio State. You know, this wasn't, like, n- normal yet. I hadn't ever heard of a trans guy, like, on the news or anything like that. And I remember my very first thought when I met him was, like, I'm so jealous he gets to cut his boobs off. (laughs) Since that moment, I kind of was plotting, like, is there a way that I can find an excuse for me to do this? Doing comedy in Chicago was really exciting. I got a lot of hype right away, which, you know, at 24, like, getting any kind of hype is super exciting. And then also, a big part of me moving to Chicago was dating women. So that was super exciting. I once, uh, this was a, a thing that happened to me a little bit ago. Um, I was just coming out. Um, I was working really, really hard to present myself as gay. And I got gay bashed in Andersonville. And it was so exciting. Oh my God. This guy was like, you're just a fucking Andersonville dyke. And I was like, oh my God, people can tell. (laughs) Things are gonna happen for me now. It was a very exciting time in my life in general. I was like, wow, I'm in this big city with this queer dance scene and people are treating me like I'm gonna be a big deal in comedy. And I remember it felt like a total heavenly dream to, like, ride my bike to open mics. And I was so grateful and into that lifestyle. My entire comedy career, I was always writing about getting reacted to as a woman on the street. I was always writing about street harassment. I was always writing about the shape of my body. I was always writing about dealing with, like, male BS. Always. Right from the get-go. Once I was on the bus... In college, I was seated by a window, and this man sat down next to me, and I'm looking out the window, and I notice there's some repetitive movement happening near his crotch. Guys, I don't mean to bring anyone down, but he was masturbating himself. That's what he was doing. That's what he was doing. Guys, before you send your daughters off to college, sit them down. Sit them down and say, sometime? On public transit? A man's gonna masturbate next to you. And you gotta react. You gotta get your head in the game. You know? 
<laughs> then you look him in the eye, then you start masturbating. <laughs> and you say, you're not the only one who gets off of making people uncomfortable. That's what you do. That's what you do. You gotta be fierce. Gotta yeah, be fierce. I think in the beginning it was this, like, kind of um, one lifeline to authenticity I had. And the problem was that I didn't know how to create that authenticity in my actual relationships. <laughs> so it was like I had to go to these open mics to get to talk about what was bothering me because I didn't really have the skills to bring that to my actual relationships with people. How did your sort of behavior change around this time? Like, Did you dress differently? Like what, what changed sort of outwardly? You know, I just kind of looked like a standard queer girl, I guess. I had like an asymmetrical haircut and I wore a lot of scarves. I started wearing very tight sports bras and then eventually bought myself a binder. And that was kind of a secret that I had. Binding made me feel relieved. Every time I'd look in the mirror and like my boobs were like not as much there, I would just feel relief. I would just feel like, like, ah, <laughs> I look the way I expect myself to look. I thought that I was beyond man or woman. I didn't want anyone seeing me as a woman or a man, that I wanted them to see me. And I think I thought that I was like some kind of growing movement of non-binary people who were bigger than man or woman. There were lots of trans guys and trans women around, and that was really when I started to be like, oh, these feelings that these trans people are describing are actually sound so much to me like how I feel about my body. I remember thinking that it was significant that like when I'd look at something like a Victoria's Secret model or something like that, it wasn't that I wanted her body. Like I didn't want to be like a leggy, beautiful woman. I just wanted not to have a woman's body at all. I went to the Philly Trans Health Conference and kind of told everybody that was just me going as like a future clinician, but that's not why I was going. I was going for me. I remember just like being in the room with 200 people and being like, oh, I finally like, this is my tribe. I fell in love with someone that I met at the Philly Trans Health Conference. Man, like talking about our childhoods and being like, yes, I always identified with Mulder, not Scully, too. Like, yes, like, like, yes, I think Brokeback Mountain is like the hottest stuff that ever happened, too. And like, I, I just having the real sense that like, okay, I haven't been living and now I'm going to start living. By October, I had my prescription for testosterone. Every other Wednesday was when I injected myself. They're tricky shots because they have to be intramuscular injections. You can't shoot them into your veins because it will really hurt your liver. How deep are we talking? I think between two and three inches. There were Wednesdays where literally I sat with the needle for like an hour being like, okay, do it, do it, do it. So what does it feel like? I was horny, hungry, relaxed, and confident. Those were the four things. I would jack off every day. I didn't feel 
sad about it in any way. I was like, this is what bros do. You jack off all you want. You smoke weed, you jack off more. You do pull-ups, and you go smoke weed with your friends, and you come home, you jack off. My place was, like, really bare, except for, like, the pull-up bar and, like, pictures from, like, a gay underwear catalog. And it was great. It was a wonderful time in my life. I, like, mentally let myself off the hook in a lot of ways that I had seen the young men in my life letting themselves off the hook. I think about, like, geez, my opinions of, like, what was appropriate behavior for young men were really low. Wow, I had, like, a real disrespect for men that I was eager to participate in myself. How much of it do you think was a direct result of the testosterone and how much of it was almost you giving yourself permission to do these things? Um, I think all the behaviors were me giving myself permission. I don't think that testosterone makes you want to smoke more weed or anything like that. It does affect sex drive, though. Oh, yeah, it does. It really does. Testosterone had a big impact on who I was attracted to. And uh, I'd always been attracted to men and women, and testosterone made me much more attracted to male people. I was suddenly, like, very attracted to, like, really tall, muscular men, big men. I had never been into that kind of man before. And just the intensity of, like, being really into them, like... <laughs> it it felt totally crazy to like actually desire the male form that much. And so the way that I dealt with that was I didn't deal with it. I just smoked more weed. And um and then I was like, well, if I'm going to be a gay trans guy, I have to move to California. I moved to California thinking having this like very utopian vision of what people in California would be like. I had this stupid idea that, like, being trans would become, in a lot of ways, a non-issue. I thought that I would walk into rooms of people and they would be like, oh, yeah, Carrie's here. He's a guy, whatever. No, of course that's not what it's like in California. It's not like that anywhere. My social anxiety had already really started to get a lot worse, and I wasn't making it any better with all the weed I was smoking. And suddenly I was in, had put myself in lots of socially kind of impossible situations. Like, okay, meet a bunch of new people. Go have this conversation about your pronouns with brand new people over and over and over and over again for months at a time. I was around people who wanted to be trans allies. It was very important to them as a social thing to appear to be good trans allies. But also it was totally clear to me that everyone was still treating me as a female person. At that point, I really was 100% sure that I was a guy. I was like 100%. And so when I had all of those awkward interactions, what I thought was it's intensely unfair that my guy friends who were born in, I guess, what I would have called the right bodies, don't have to go through any of this BS. <laughs> so when I was going through those awkward interactions, I was just incredibly angry and resentful. I started seeing a lot of negative stuff from men that I 
admired and wanted to be like from my comedy friends from um, the male people that I was living with and even like the male people I was working with that I kind of like vibed with and wanted to like be friends with and be the same as um, I, I just was seeing a lot of like disrespect towards women that I couldn't couldn't really get down with and and did really just didn't want them to see I wanted them to keep it away from me on the podcast I was doing which was this podcast of awkward sex stories on three different occasions I actually had men tell stories about sex that were like clearly there was no consent in the sex and on one story there was like violent coercion and um, these guys like got in front of a room full of people and told the stories and clearly thought that the stories were funny. I just was like, oh, it felt to me like maybe I had missed something big about men. And I at least didn't want women who had gone through that with men to group me with them. I knew from those experiences of those guys telling those stories that if I passed as a man and I had a man ever tell me in a joking manner about a time that he raped a woman, like one-on-one, it would be a huge event for my mental health. I actually couldn't create a reality where men felt comfortable talking that way to me. Because of your past experience. Right. Like, I've been the punchline to a guy. I've been raped and I've been a punchline to a guy. I can't ever have a man make another woman a punchline to my face. It can't happen. I would either have to, like, strangle him to death, which is not a possibility in my life. I'm not going to jail. Or I'd have to have like a a breakdown over feeling powerless. So I'm not, I knew that I couldn't handle that reality. It, it sounds like it became an integral part of what it meant to be uh, a man. Well, let's see. How much was it? I think I, it wasn't so much that I was like, oh, men are like this. I more was like, how much can I take this male culture, actually? And the solution that I saw was I was like, well, the trans guys I know aren't really living ensconced in male culture like that. They're really moving in these queer bubbles. A lot of them, like, have lots and lots of lesbian friends. So, like, it's not that they're... They don't have to do that male cultural signaling the way that like a, a, a cis guy has to. So the choice I saw was I was like, well, maybe it doesn't make sense for me to move towards passing as a cis guy, but maybe I can just find like a little bubble of like trans people and I can like be understood as not a woman and still get my tits off. That was really the important part. I kept coming back to like, I want these boobs off of my body. I just have to build the bubble. So, you know, I kind of like was moving towards making that happen. And then I got a job at a um, clinic that served trans people and women. And when I got that job, I was like, oh my gosh, God is rewarding me. (laughs) This is going to happen. My transition is going to happen. The clinic was really, really underfunded and kind of a mess. I was working the phones. I was a receptionist. It was it was really a matter of like 
you never knew when you picked up a call if the person was going to be like screaming, like literally screaming right off the bat. The actual patients were in lots of different kinds of life crises. There's lots of like shut-in stuff happening, kind of a lot of people getting disability for like their social anxiety being so bad that they couldn't work. I remember one that made a big impression on me was that there was an older person who was non-binary who called all the time because they wanted fertility treatment. But they were in their 50s, and the time when any kind of fertility treatment would have been an option was, like, long gone. This person used to, like, call up and be like, I'm done with this trans stuff. I'm a she. Saying all this stuff about needing fertility treatment, and all the doctors could do was kind of, like, roll their eyes because, like, it was a done deal. There was no kind of fertility treatment this person could even come close to affording that could help them conceive. This was like a patient that I like talked to every day. And uh, I don't know, they would just cry, they would call up crying about how they wanted to, ah, uh, man, uh, I, I almost, they would call up crying about how they wanted a baby. I was 31 at this point. I was like, man, I have decided to put my 30s towards this, like, identity thing. And it turns out you can get to your 50s and, like, want to have done something else with your 30s. It was pretty normal for me to wake up, like, crying. It would take me a long time to, like, kind of get myself together and get out of bed. I get high and like for a couple of months that would kind of like distract me from feeling bad. Um, I had like a real short fuse. I felt disrespected a lot. I felt real like paranoid about like other people's intentions. I was just isolating a lot. I had thoughts of suicide for like a while, like maybe like six months of kind of daily thoughts of suicide. I bought a 7-Eleven pizza after work to eat, and I ate half of the 7-Eleven pizza before I got on the BART, and then I took the BART over to Oakland. By that time, the 7-Eleven pizza was disgusting. And, and I was around Lake Merritt, and I was just looking for a trash can to put the pizza in. I saw a guy, like, hanging out under a bridge, and I was like, oh, well, I should offer him the pizza. If I'm going to throw it away anyway, whatever. I went up to him, and he was like, oh, my gosh, I was just praying for food, and here you are. You're the answer to my prayers. Like, you're some kind of angel. God is good, all this stuff. And I just started crying because I, like, hadn't actually been in a position to, like, do anyone a favor. I had been, like, the, you know, I had been the down on my luck one for a while. I hadn't gotten to be, like, the giver for a while. And um, anyway, I started crying. And I was like, you don't understand how important this is for me. And then he was crying and we hugged. The prayer of St. Francis popped right into my head. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. 
Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is doubt, faith. Grant that I may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. It seems so black and white, but like it really wiped out my suicidal thoughts. Because I kind of was just like, okay, that's not life. <laughs> like, I don't get what I want. <laughs> like, shit sucks. I'm not going to kill myself. <laughs> and if we're just having a day where Carrie Callahan is not getting what Carrie Callahan wants, then we are just going to weather that day. I didn't detransition in that moment or anything like that. I just decided that I wasn't ever going to kill myself. Um, so, yeah. There's no reason for me to be in California anymore. So I made plans to move back. And when I moved back, it was like, okay, like I'm tail between my legs. Like this is over. Like, yeah, it was like a white flag kind of situation. When I went back to Ohio, I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to be a woman, I'm going to like learn womanhood and I'm going to do this correctly. And, and I like, Bought a bunch of makeup, and I, like, I don't know, bought heels, and, like, I would, it was kind of an anxiety management thing for me. I would, like, put on a full face of makeup every morning just to, like, feel okay, just to feel like, okay, people can't tell. I look normal. I didn't look normal. I looked like I had a, I looked like I was wearing tons of makeup for no reason. I went to the Michigan Women's Festival. It was sort of a lesbian feminist music festival. And I had gone because they were having a detransition workshop. I remember the first shower that I took at the Michigan Women's Festival. It was open air showers and you waited in a line with a bunch of naked women to take a shower. And it's women of all ages. I realized that I had never been around that many naked women, and especially that many naked women of all different kinds of ages. You know, it's not like you're 13 and you're with a bunch of 13-year-olds in the school's gym taking showers. It's like you're with women in their 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. It tripped me out in this huge way. Oh my gosh, I've been looking at pictures from magazines of what women's bodies look like, and those pictures are absolutely not any way what women's bodies look like. I swear, like, it really blew my mind. I was like, whoa, all these things that I feel about my body are wrong and freakish, like the cellulite all over my thighs and my saggy boobs and stuff like that. They're so normal. They're the norm. I remember looking at the sky that night, and, you know, we were in the wilderness. There's no light pollution, and there's, like, all these stars. And I just had this profound feeling of, like, I don't even know what the sky actually looks like because of all this light pollution that I live under. And I don't actually know what women's bodies look like because of all this media pollution <laughs> that I live under.
So can we talk about the reaction among trans folks? You must have been very nervous about going public with this story. I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, like, for myself, this symptom of gender dysphoria did have a lot to do with the difficulty of walking around female in this world. For many people, that's a really offensive thing to hear because it sounds invalidating to their experience of gender dysphoria because it sounds like I'm giving ammunition to people who think that people don't have the right to do these medical interventions, make these choices with their lives. When you did go public, like what kind of reaction did you get from people? Mostly... I've had kind of a lot of trans people reach out, and overwhelmingly, it's actually been a really nice reaction. Over Overwhelmingly, it's like transition was absolutely like the right thing for me. It was what I needed to do to live a happy life, but I'm glad you're speaking up. And I've gotten lots of emails from, like, other detransition people and other people who, like, didn't get all the way to a medical intervention, but kind of spent some time figuring out that, like, know that they were on the wrong track. I only recently started getting any negative feedback. There's an article that was written about you called Real Life Victims of the Transgender Cult. Can you read a bit from that? I'll I'll read the first paragraph. More and more parents are stepping out, admitting that their children identify as transgender. That's in quotes and wanting to do something about it. Schools encourage gender confusion, and doctors reportedly won't even run preliminary tests if a child asks for life-altering treatment. That's also in quotes. But before you sign your kids up, listen to the real-life stories of people who deeply regret their transition, also in quotes. And what's your response to reading something like that? There are some assertions in this article that I, like, am about, like, halfway on board with. And then there's, like, Okay, transition is in quotes. That's kind of real weird. The transgender cult thing is is real hyperbolic. And there's this kind of like crisis narrative that my face and my words are being used to tell the story of, right? It's hard because I... Because I am super concerned about people under 18 making these choices because I got it wrong at 30. So I think it would be really easy to get it wrong at 16. And then it's the same time, like, but I, I wouldn't talk this way. And, and I don't really want to be affiliated with, I don't know. Like I'm, I, I grew up in Cleveland, like the daughter of like a community organizer. Like I'm, I don't, I don't feel hungry to to for like right wing um, affiliations. Uh, I don't know. So, did you feel like you had to set the record straight? Like, did I feel so? No, I did not feel the need to set the record straight. I felt like what I said in the videos was what I meant to say. I think in my videos, I've been really consistent from the get go, saying that for some people, transition is what they need to do to live a happy life. And I feel like dismissing the existence of detransitioned people and kids who desist in their trans identities is so dangerous for kids with gender dysphoria that I, 
I feel really comfortable with my stance that for adults, this can be a set of choices that is the best for them. Adults should be able to have the right to explore that option. And it is dangerous to act like people don't come out of this process regretful that they came out of the pro- that they did the process. You're creating a situation that specifically helps people exactly like myself harm themselves. I do think that some assessments about psychological conditions where dissociation is a part of the condition are reasonable to include in the process of people getting letters for hormones and surgery. People react to too many assessments as if that's gatekeeping, but I think that that's the kind of process that is very helpful to the patient. Well, that was that was your experience, right? Like you went into the therapist and you were like, I don't, you know, I'm against gatekeeping. This is what I want to do. And your therapist said, yes. So you're saying you wish that they, that that therapist would have been like, hold on. Yeah, I do. I wish that, I guess I wish, I don't really blame that therapist because if that therapist had said, hold on, I would have been like, you're a transphobic bigot. I'm about to call you out all over the internet for putting your transphobia on my face. So I think that that therapist was trying to do her best and trying to be a good person and a good therapist. But I do wish that somehow magically that therapist had been like, interesting. So (laughs) you're telling me that you got raped in college and um, you're telling me that your body doesn't feel real. Um, And also, you're also describing these other things that are common of people who dissociate. Maybe let's track these feelings a little bit, keep record of these feelings, and then see if there are other ways of approaching these feelings first. I absolutely, like as an individual, did not need to live as a man. (laughs) I needed to like get my trauma treated. (laughs) I needed to like work through what needed to happen physiologically so that I could feel like my body was real And living as a man was never going to do that for me and was probably going to re-traumatize me further. In a perfect world, someone very wise and very gentle would have gotten a hold of me and said, like, wow, let's try out some other stuff. How would you describe your gender identity now? Yeah, I identify as a female lady from Ohio who actually looks and is a pretty normal female lady from Ohio kind of bottom heavy, pretty like sloppy in terms of looks, a little bit lazy, a little bit opinionated, kind of bossy. I feel very much like, I feel very connected to not only being female, but like being a Midwestern female. Um, I'm very much like an Ohioan lady. That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was produced by Jesse Carrier. Special thanks also to Joanna Richards and Uffy Scruggs, as well as listener Moira, for writing in to recommend Carrie's story. Love and Radio is produced by Jesse Carrier, Stephen Jackson, and myself. 
We are a production of Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia is made possible by the Knight Foundation, by MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork, and most importantly, by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. We always love getting your feedback, so if you've got some, please call us on our listener hotline at 641-715-3900, extension 55403. Thanks for listening.